Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown. Across the table is my good friend, Matthew Stockton. Hello, Mike Brown. How are you today, Matthew Stockton? Uh, This episode is being released on Halloween. So it is our, and this will be Dark Poutine's fifth anniversary. Wow. That's craziness. Yeah. Five years. Yeah, five years. Seems like an eternity. (laughs) Well, it doesn't seem like an eternity to me. It seems like it just blew by. If you want to listen to our Halloween episode, you'll have to go to our Patreon feed, patreon.com slash darkpoutine, and there's two Halloween episodes with lots of other true crime shows there. It's called The Nightmare Before Halloween, and it's really doing well, apparently, like getting mentioned in all kinds of different places, but Dark Poutine is in part two. So there's two of them. Yeah. Double the pleasure, double the double the scares. Yeah, and it's over four hours. I think it's wow. actually over five hours of stuff. I should give it a listen. Yes, you should, definitely should. And it's absolutely free. You don't have to be a patron to get these episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash darkpoutine and it'll be right there in our feed. But while you're on the Patreon page, feel free. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. Did you plan it that way? Of course I did. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just lead the horse to water. Exactly. <laughs> and whether you drink or not is fine. But there are free Halloween episodes times two there, and there's some great shows involved, including Nancy Grace herself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to Dark Poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. March 3, 2005, a contingent of RCMP constables attended the property of James Michael Roscoe, 46, in Rochefort Bridge, near Mayerthorpe, Alberta. The members were there to serve a search warrant for stolen property and a marijuana-growing operation on the farm, discovered the day before. Roscoe, knowing the police would be arriving soon, armed himself with the help of a couple of friends, Sean Hennessy and Dennis Cheeseman. Then he waited for the RCMP. When four of the officers, Anthony Gordon, Leonide Leo Johnson, Brock Myrall, and Peter Sheeman walked into a Quonset hunt on the farm, Roscoe, hidden inside the building, opened fire on the four members, killing them and then himself before other RCMP members on site could come to their aid. In the last episode, we learned of the life of the murderer leading up to the day of the slaying of the four RCMP members. In this episode, you'll hear about the crime and its aftermath. You're listening to Dark Poutine episode 242, Fallen 4, The Mayor Thorpe Tragedy, Part 2, The Shooting and Aftermath. During their entry into Roscoe's property for the civil matter on March 2, 2005, the Mayor Thorpe RCMP constables had discovered a large amount of stolen property and would need to investigate the scene, ideally during daylight hours. 
The property was then secured with RCMP members acting as highly visible overnight security on the property's perimeter. In the meantime, one Mayerthorpe RCMP corporal named Martin began the process of getting the warrant. In order to obtain a search warrant, an RCMP member must put together an information to obtain a search warrant affidavit which outlines the facts and reasoning for why judicial permission is necessary to enter and search private property. Corporal Martin compiled the supporting information with help from other members, submitted the application, and was ultimately granted the warrant that evening and returned to the property. RCMP did enter the property that evening around 9.30 p.m. to get a sense of what would be required to successfully execute the warrant and gather the evidence. The Green Team were responsible for dealing with marijuana grow-ups. They would conduct thorough searches of the property, photograph and catalog any illegal grows they found, and seize as many exhibits as possible. The auto theft team was scheduled to come in the morning. To make space in the Quonset for all the seized items, Corporal Martin arranged for a tow truck to remove any vehicles or equipment inside. Some of these items needed to go directly to Mayerthorpe, so Martin provided security for the civilian drivers during transport. It's really interesting to hear um, the part about cannabis, mm -hmm. or marijuana, as you call it in this story. Yeah, well, because it wasn't legal at the time. Yeah, and and as as you know, a lot of listeners know, I'm in I'm in the legal cannabis industry, and you know, it, it's it's an amazing thing that we finally live in a society where people like this guy, yeah, aren't involved in growing that crop. Yeah, they, well, maybe people like him are involved in growing the crop. They're just, it's just not in a criminal way anymore, <laughs> you know? Well, or, or it is, but it's no longer worthwhile because we're taking sure. all the market share. There right? you go. Yeah, but it's um, getting cannabis out of the hands of people like this is, was a smart move. Although the owner of the property, James Roscoe, had not shown violence toward the police in the past, they believed he was capable of it based on his history and planned accordingly. The 12-member Mayerthorpe detachment thought it best to call in the ERT team to assist with a potential arrest, and it turned out to be a good idea, as some ominous evidence was found in James Roscoe's home. From the report of the public fatality inquiry to the Minister of Justice and Attorney General, quote, a radio scanner tuned to the White Court RCMP frequency was located in Roscoe's residence. The residence also contained intelligence on the local detachments at Mayerthorpe, Whitecourt, Barhead, and Evansburg, including members' names, car numbers, and cell phone numbers. A night vision scope and 308 and 9mm caliber ammunition was also present. It was now evident that Roscoe was in breach of his firearms prohibition, and Martin conveyed this information and instructions to look for firearms to all the members at the site. Roscoe, it would appear, had been surveilling and gathering information on the police. So this was not at all sort of a sting operation gone bad. This guy was was plotting out how to get to the police. Yeah, or just watching them, at least watching them. But like having their numbers, phone numbers, mm -hmm. it's just... This, this was a bad dude, man. Yeah, thanks to the information that we learned about him in the last episode, he is definitely not a good person. No. The green team got to the farm at half past 12 in the morning of March 3rd, 2005. They went right to work on the grow-up portion of the investigation. They worked until just after 2.30 a.m. before calling it quits for the night. Corporal Martin, Sergeant Pinder, and Constables Johnston and Gordon were still on scene after the green team left. The gathering of evidence was only partially done, so there was still a lot of work to do once the sun came up. The auto theft team hadn't even started their work yet. Thanks to the limited resources of the Mayerthorpe detachment, there would be two RCMP members, Constables Leo Johnston and Anthony Gordon, providing site security throughout the entire night. Before they left for the night, between 3.30 and 4 a.m., Sergeant Pinder and Corporal Martin briefed Constables Gordon and Johnston the remaining officers were told, quote, just stay alert for any vehicle traffic or anyone approaching the place. It was up to them whether or not they stayed in their vehicles or walked around the property. They were well armed in case Roscoe came back and caused trouble. Each officer had a sidearm in addition to a shotgun in their vehicle. Constable Johnston also carried a 308 rifle. The rest of the morning passed without incident. 
Corporal Martin called Constable Johnston at about 9 a.m. in the morning to check in. Constable Johnston told Martin that the night had been uneventful. Neither he nor Constable Gordon had anything to report. Constable Martin had another commitment that required his attention. He sent Constable Brock Myrell to Roscoe's to assist Constables Gordon and Johnston. The trio was to assist the auto theft investigators with whatever they needed. Constable Peter Sheeman offered to drive Myrell to the farm, but they had an errand to run first. Roscoe's dogs were still confined in the wooden shed near the Quonset. They were hungry and in a foul mood, growling and barking whenever the members came near. They seemed to hate cops as much as their owner. Oh, I'm sure they didn't. Yeah, I know. They were probably just, you know, no, angry <laughs> to be stuck where they no were. No such thing as an evil dog. No. Just evil owners who abuse them or train them to be like that. That's right. You know, some dog breeds, even the one that you have, English Bulldog, have been demonized from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. It's no. just, it's just the owners. <laughs> yeah. We might get some flack for saying that, but you know what? There's and no actual evidence that these dogs are evil. <laughs> No. 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 None of them has been found with the Satanic Bible. No. Well, I mean, I don't know if that's even evil. <laughs> I'm doing a lot of research into the black arts right now, and I'm not sure that Satanism is, is evil at all. <laughs> so anyway, Myrel and Sheeman first went to a local veterinarian to gather sedatives for the dogs. From there, they went to a store to get some meat. They'd then pepper it with the sedatives and feed it to the vicious Rottweilers. It isn't clear when Constable Sheeman and Myrell arrived at the farm. When the auto theft team marked their arrival on site, it was 9.56 a.m. The four other constables, Johnston, Gordon, Myrell, and Sheeman, were already there. Sheeman was in plain clothes as later on that day he planned to head to Edmonton to run an errand. The other three constables were in uniform. The four constables were finishing with administering sedatives to Roscoe's dogs. I'm glad this story took this turn. I was I was worried that mm -hmm. um, they're going to be end up shooting the dogs. Yeah, and whenever and whenever I see that in the news, it really bothers me. I mean, if they're coming at them and they need to protect themselves, but so often I see stories of dogs being put down. Um, kind of unfairly in a way. And uh, I bet you some of these cops were dog lovers, actually. Probably. They probably were like, you know what? We're not going to do that. We're going to sedate them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Like a lot of times we hear stories about police officers who act badly. You know, that's what seems to make the news. That makes the news, right? Right. Yeah. But when cops do good things, things, good things, things that the average person who with a heart would do. Yeah. That never makes sense. It news. gets overlooked. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of interesting. After some brief conversation with one of the other officers present, Hugestrat and Vigor, two members of the auto theft team, chatted and prepped for their day. The four other constables approached the steel Quonset and disappeared from sight. Only a few moments later, as Hugestrat and Vigor talked about the day ahead, they heard two loud bangs. They thought at first the banging was due to something hitting the inside wall of the Quonset as the other officers were moving things around. Soon after the initial bangs, however, came what the experienced officers knew to be gunfire, six to eight shots. They drew their sidearms and ran toward the Quonset. They'd not run far when Vigor, who was ahead of Hugestrad, saw something that shook him. It was the distinctive yellow striped leg of an RCMP member on the ground near the Quonset. The rest of the person was not visible at the time. Vigor did not know the other officer's status. Out of caution, he yelled to Hugestrad, telling him to call in a 1033 officer's down call. As Vigor advanced toward the Quonset, a man appeared. It was James Michael Roscoe. He exited the now-open large door in the shed. Roscoe was sauntering along, hunting rifles slung across his back. He also had a semi-automatic rifle in his hands, and there was a pistol tucked into his belt. Vigor recalled that Roscoe had a surprised look on his face when the two locked eyes. Vigor later said, I don't think he expected to see another police officer or person there. Although surprised, Roscoe acted fast, pointing his semi-automatic rifle toward Vigor. He fired twice. Both shots missed Vigor, hitting the RCMP cruiser he was next to. Vigor returned fire, squeezing off two shots. Roscoe turned and staggered back into the Quonset. Vigor was not sure at the time whether he'd hit his target. He had. Both Vigor's shots had hit Roscoe. One had plowed through Roscoe's left hand and the other had hit Roscoe in the right leg. The shot in the leg had gone into Roscoe's thigh and smashed his femur. 
an excruciating injury. Roscoe was better armed. Vigor retreated, hiding behind an RCMP cruiser. Hugestrad, already in his unmarked RCMP Yukon, backed toward Vigor. Vigor took cover behind the Yukon as Hugestrad backed it away from the Quonset doors. As the two RCMP members retreated, there was another shot from inside the Quonset, but they didn't hear that one. Other than the accidental discharge of an ERT member's weapon later in the day, that was the last shot. From cover, Hoogstrad and Vigor attempted to communicate with the other four officers. There were no responses to repeated radio calls. They felt powerless to help their fellow members. Despite a strong desire to run in to rescue the others, the two officers stayed safe. Vigor and Hoogstrad agonized met only with silence while backup from several nearby RCMP detachments arrived. How hard would that be, mm-hmm. wanting to go in there to save your colleagues or, and your friends, probably? Yeah. But you're in a situation where you can't. I mean, this is reality, right? Yes. You know? Yeah. It's not a movie. It, it's no. These are real people who are hearing colleagues in distress mm-hmm. and can't go help them. Yeah, it's horrific. At 10.13 a.m., the emergency response team received a call to respond to Roscoe's property. Their job would be to negotiate if possible. If communication broke down or was impossible, they planned for an armed entry into the Quonset. ERT was on scene by 11.52 a.m. According to the later report of the public fatality inquiry, this was a remarkably short period of time given the logistics of assembling the team and that Mayor Thorpe is over an hour from Edmonton. Meanwhile, a command center had been established on Range Road 75 as additional assistance arrived. Members were assigned to security perimeters. The Edmonton Police Service helicopter was employed and was able to provide a limited view into the Quonset. End quote. The ERT team made repeated futile attempts to raise the RCMP members in the Quonset via radio. They couldn't raise Roscoe either. They sent a robot called a Remote Mobile Investigator, RMI, equipped with a camera into the large shed. There, they found that all four RCMP members and James Michael Roscoe were dead. The rest of the operation would involve the recovery of bodies and investigation of the five deaths. At about 10 a.m., the four RCMP members had walked into the Quonset. Constable Sheeman who was on his way to Edmonton, as we mentioned, and in civilian clothes, was unarmed and not wearing body armor. The three uniform members wore soft body armor, armed only with RCMP-issue handguns. Why they entered the Quonset at the time and what they were going to do there is unknown, because they're not around to tell us. Forensic evidence established that Roscoe fired the majority of the shots from the southeast corner of the Quonset near the Mandor. Roscoe used large items a freezer, a car hood, and a large tank in that area to hide himself from view. He'd secreted himself there underneath a blanket. It is unknown for sure which order Roscoe shot the four officers. As Constable Gordon's body lay nearest the main overhead door, he might have been the first one shot. His gun was not drawn, and he was the closest to any potential escape route. It appears Constable Sheeman and Johnson were probably the next victims. Constable Myrell was able to draw his weapon and move towards the rear of the Quonset in a possible attempt to find cover before he was fatally wounded. Vigor's shots had not killed Roscoe. At autopsy, it was discovered neither. From the report of the public fatality inquiry, quote, It is clear that the initial shots came from behind the officers. A number of those shots appear to have been directed downward, implying that the members were already down. Given the firepower Roscoe brought to bear, a Heckler & Koch H&K 308 semi-automatic rifle, the four officers had little chance to survive the surprise attack. That said, it is also plain that Constable Johnston did respond. The evidence shows he drew his firearm and fired one shot. Likely while he was on the ground and wounded, this bullet struck the handle of the Beretta handgun tucked into Roscoe's waistband and did no significant damage to Roscoe. It appears that Roscoe probably then responded by moving in a counterclockwise northwest direction from his original position, firing at least two more shots at Constable Johnston while he was on the ground. Roscoe, now at the end of his flurry of shots, 
then headed out the large door to his unsuspected encounter with Constable Vigor. Can you imagine? So just one inch to the right or to the left, it could have hit him instead of the the handle of his Beretta, and maybe he could have been saved. Yeah. It, you know, when, when you hear these stories and, like, the detail of these stories, mm-hmm. you realize how seconds and inches yeah. um, matter. They totally matter. And Constable Johnston on the ground hit Roscoe exactly where he's trained to fire, center, middle, middle, yeah. mid-mass kind of thing. But there just happened to be a handgun there that he hit instead. Crazy. Yeah, it's very crazy. The two successful shots from Vigor had not killed Roscoe. At autopsy, it was discovered neither would have been fatal on their own. The report of the public fatality inquiry continues, quote, Roscoe died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to his left chest, this from a bullet fired from his semi-automatic rifle while it was near or in contact with his chest. The bullet passed through his body and was recovered behind and above where Roscoe had been sitting on the Quonset floor. This suicide would have occurred within the time Vigor, now sheltering behind the Yukon, was moving backward over the crusty, snowy ground, his ears no doubt still ringing from the discharges of his and Roscoe's weapons. Neither he nor Hugestrat heard any shots after their retreat from the Quonset. Bruce Gunn, a firearms expert, testified that the sound of Roscoe's self-inflicted wound would have been significantly muzzled by the barrel's proximity to his chest, end quote. Constables Gordon, Johnston, and Sheeman had died of multiple gunshot wounds. Constable Myrell had expired due to a single gunshot wound to the head. From the report of the public fatality inquiry, quote, It appears that Roscoe, by cloaking his whereabouts and the sound of his approach by placing heavy socks on his boots and concealing himself under a sheet, likely approached to a point near the northeast corner of the Quonset. It is not known at what time this would have occurred. Investigators later learned he had been dropped off approximately one mile west of the Quonset between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. There was no information of his whereabouts until the shooting occurred. It seems unlikely that he accessed the Quonset before daylight. It remains a possibility that he did so. It is not known precisely on what course he approached the Quonset, but footprints were found proceeding from the west in the general direction of the Quonset. A sheet and pillowcase containing a pair of work gloves, a small water bottle, and a can of bear spray were found at the northeast corner of the Quonset. Roscoe probably had concealed himself at that location for some time. Again, no definitive evidence could be found to otherwise clarify his movements during the night. He was well-equipped to spend the night outdoors. He wore long underwear, an undershirt, fleece, a winter-weight bomber jacket, another fleece, and two pairs of socks in addition to those over his boots. He had a hat and gloves, end quote. Even though the shooter was dead, there were still a lot of unanswered questions. We'll learn the answers to some of those and hear the conclusion of this episode after a quick break. And we are back. Matthew Thoughts. I find this one upsetting Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, I have a cousin who's a police officer. Yep. And when you have family who are police officers, Mm -hmm. these stories really hit home, right? They really do. Uh, Because you're connected and you feel feel these stories very deeply. Yeah. um, I have a number of friends, people I went to high school with who are members of the RCMP and local police officers in different jurisdictions. The one guy who's an RCMP member back in Nova Scotia, my friend Darren, I'm not going to say his last name because I don't want to out an RCMP officer on the show. Darren gave me a challenge coin with his badge number on it the last time I was home. What's a challenge coin? Uh, A challenge coin, essentially, if you take it to a bar and you are with a bunch of people who are police officers yeah. and you put down a challenge coin, they have to buy you a drink. <laughs> oh. Yeah, they all have to, everybody at the table I'm has gonna to buy ask, you a drink. I'm going to ask my cousin for a challenge coin. Yeah, there so you go. So people have to buy me a Diet Coke when yeah, I'm in a bar. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's kind of useless to me. <laughs> when but, you don't drink. But it's a, it's a, I treasure it. Like I treasure that yeah, because course. it's, you know, Darren and I went to the uh, New Minus RCMP detachment when we were in grade 11, I think it was, for job shadowing. Both of us job shadowed with the RCMP. <laughs> you as a cop. I, I wanted to be. 
I did want to be, but uh, obviously you're I was, too short. No, I'm not too short. Oh They're, no, they that that has gone. You're too pretty. No, I was too drunk. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I wasn't capable to keep my stuff together yeah. to become an RCMP member. So I just never did. Yeah, I think you're probably better behind a microphone. Maybe. I don't know. As news broke of the multiple murders of RCMP members unusual in our nation, Canada mourned. On March 10, 2005, there was a massive memorial held in Edmonton with approximately 10,000 people in attendance. Many were officers from other police services and first responders from Canada and the United States. The memorial was televised nationally on the CBC. Prime Minister Paul Martin and Governor General Adrian Clarkson both spoke at the service. A contingent of 5,000 Mounties in their ceremonial red surges paid tribute to the fallen members to the sounds of a large pipe and drum regiment. The individual officers were were later buried by their families in other well-attended funerals in their respective hometowns. On May 19, 2005, Queen Elizabeth II attended a ceremony in honor of the slain officers at the RCMP Academy Depot Division in Regina, Saskatchewan. She also met privately with relatives of the four slain Mounties in the RCMP Chapel at Depot Division. At the time of the killings, she had sent a letter to the Lieutenant Governor of Alberta expressing her shock and condolences. Did she fly in for it? She might have. It might have been, okay, this is horrific, so I'm going to go. Because it was such an anomaly in Canada, like the first time in decades that numerous RCMP officers were murdered, at least four, were murdered in one go. I mean, later on, obviously in Moncton, we had Justin Bork. Why do they call it killed in the line of duty when it's kind of, it's murder, isn't it? They were murdered in the line of duty, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But uh, they just I just, because when I said that word, I realized people often don't say that. Yeah. They say killed in the line of duty. It's, yeah. For me, it's, it's murder. It is murder. The website fallen4.ca memorializes the four RCMP members who died at Roscoe's hand. The following brief biography of each comes from that site. Constable Peter Christopher Scheman, Regimental Number 48064. Peter Scheman, 25, was a member of the Mayor Thorpe Detachment of the RCMP. He was born at Petrolia, Ontario. He earned a Bachelor of Arts degree, loved to skydive, and fell in love with the RCMP after he went on ride-alongs with members. Upon completion of training at Depot in Regina, Saskatchewan on November 27, 2000, Scheman was posted to K Division, Alberta, at the Mayerthorpe Detachment, where he worked in general policing and highway patrol. Constable Anthony Fitzgerald Orion Gordon, Regimental Number 49673. Anthony Gordon, 28, was a member of the White Court Detachment of the RCMP. He was born at Edmonton, Alberta, raised in Red Deer, Alberta, and joined the force there. The seed to be a Mountie was planted in grade one when a member of the force visited his school. It got my wheels spinning, and that was his goal ever since. Gordon loved the outdoors, and he loved to fish and snowmobile. Upon completion of training at Depot in Regina, Saskatchewan on October 15, 2002, Gordon was posted to K Division, Alberta, at the White Court Town Detachment, where he worked in general policing and highway patrol. Constable Leonide Leo Nicholas Johnston, Regimental Number 48568. Leonide Johnston, 32, was from Owl River, Alberta. He joined the RCMP about four years before his death with his twin brother, Lee. Both were ace marksmen and received their Crown Pistols and Crown Rifles badges that year. Both liked to race motorcycles. In 1997, Johnston was in a motorcycle accident while racing at Calgary's Race City Motorsport Park, and he spent a week in a coma. He recovered and later joined the force in 2001 at Lac La Biche, Alberta. He was posted to Mayerthorpe. He had a special connection with the Alexis First Nations Reserve near Mayerthorpe. Constable Brock Warren Myrell, Regimental Number 51874. Brock Myrell, 29, had been on the job less than three weeks when he was shot and killed. Days after graduating from the RCMP Training Academy in Regina in February of 2005, Myrell began his work in Mayerthorpe, Alberta. Myrell decided to become an RCMP officer in 2002. 
He had worked as a security guard and studied toward an undergraduate arts degree from Red Deer College. Myrell was born in Outlook, Saskatchewan, and raised in Red Deer, Alberta. He came from a family that loved music. He sang, composed music, and played guitar. His mother, Colleen Myrell, said her son was a responsible citizen who wanted to make a difference. Canadians are wonderful, loving, caring people, she said. Brock knew that and dedicated his life to preserving that tradition, end quote. I really feel for their families. Um, you know, you, you said this earlier in the show, Mike, we always hear the negative news about the police. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course there are bad ones, but yeah. I bet there's 99% are good. Yeah. Who, people who have a job to do. Yeah. And, uh, and people get into policing because they want to serve. Yeah. And you know me, I'm not big on calling police or anyone heroes, right? No. Or blindly raising people up that way. Right. But I do believe that because they're my family members as well, they're their community, their family, their friends, and they have a tough job to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and we have to give them the respect and gratitude that they deserve the good ones. Totally. Know? And, um, from what we know, these guys were good guys. And this guy, I haven't hated one of our nemeses in the show as much as I'm hating this one right now. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I often do, but this guy really bothers me. Well, just because of what he got away with for so long, essentially. He yeah. Was, he was just a menace. Yeah. Like, I hate to use the word menace to society, but that was yeah. that was what he was. He just was, like, nothing good. No. The investigation uncovered a number of firearms, eight in all, on Roscoe's property. Not a single one was legally registered to James Michael Roscoe. The H&K 308 rifle was traced from its original import into the United States and its subsequent apparently legal sale and shipment into Canada in December of 1980. The individual who had imported it lived near Mayerthorpe, Alberta. Roscoe probably acquired it by purchase in the late 1980s. This is now a prohibited weapon, and a registration requirement for this weapon became effective January 1, 1995. The Beretta 92 FS pistol was purchased by Roscoe in Utah, United States, in May of 1993. It appears Roscoe smuggled this weapon into Canada. It is now a restricted weapon. The 22 Remington rifle was legally imported to Canada in September 1981. There were no further records available in respect of this firearm, a non-restricted weapon. The Defender 12-gauge shotgun found in the same case as the 22 rifle had been legally imported into Canada in April 1993. No further records were available for this firearm, also a non-restricted weapon. The remaining three weapons, all non-restricted firearms, were those found inside the seed drill located inside the Quonset. The Husqvarna 308 rifle the 303 MK1 Lee Enfield rifle and the remaining rifle a 1918 303 Lee Enfield all appear to have been stolen from a Barhead Alberta location in July of 1997 end quote also found was a Winchester rifle 70 XTR 300 that was registered to the grandfather of Sean Hennessy a known associate of Roscoe's this would turn out to be a lead into the investigation about who, if anyone, had helped Roscoe on the morning of the murders. Police then interviewed the grandfather, Mr. Hennessy Sr. He indicated to police that he last saw his rifle in the first part of November 2004, that he usually had the rifle behind the seat of his truck, and he did not know if anyone knew it was there, and there were times that he left his vehicle unlocked. He further stated he noticed the rifle missing on March 6, 2005. He claimed at the time that Sean Hennessy, his grandson, was not involved with respect to the disappearance of the rifle, end quote. Records from Roscoe's cell phone usage also pointed in the same direction. Investigators found his phone on his body and the usage showed that he had called his mother, who had called his aunt. Interviews with his mother and aunt revealed that he had been seeking permission to hide his truck in his aunt's property. Roscoe's cell phone records also showed Roscoe had phoned Sean Hennessy's workplace in Barhead and then made several calls to Hennessy's mobile phone as well as several calls to Hennessy's residence. When information about the cell phone calls became public a year later in 2006, Hennessy tearfully denied to a reporter for the Globe and Mail that he knew anything about the events or why Roscoe was calling him. 
He'd also denied any involvement to police investigators. It would take two years before the truth came out. As the investigation progressed, RCMP became suspicious that Sean Hennessy and his brother-in-law, Dennis Cheeseman, had helped to arm Roscoe and then had driven him back to his farm on the night of the killings. Neither man was talking, though. So, as we've seen many times before, RCMP went to work for a number of months with an elaborate Mr. Big undercover operation to get a confession. From the Edmonton Sun, quote, The lavish 2007 operation featured a female RCMP officer posing as a potential love interest for Dennis Cheeseman, a fake company Christmas party complete with an undercover Santa Claus, and a fake beating and other bogus crime capers involving stolen diamonds and illegal guns. Cheeseman was slowly sucked into the make-believe group and eventually told Mr. Big's right-hand man about the night he and Sean Hennessy drove Roscoe to his farm. End quote. On July 9, 2007, although neither man had been present for the shootings, Dennis Keegan Cheeseman, 23, and Sean William Hennessy, 28, were charged with first-degree murder as parties to the crime and the deaths of the four fallen RCMP members. An agreed statement of facts detailing their involvement with Roscoe was signed by Hennessy and Cheeseman. From the report of the Public Fatality Inquiry to the Minister of Justice and Attorney General, quote, The agreed facts disclose that during the evening of March 2, 2005, Roscoe went to Hennessy's rural residence near Barhead. Dennis Cheeseman eventually joined them there. Hennessy had earlier requested Cheeseman's help because there were RCMP officers at Roscoe's farm, and Hennessy was involved in the grow operation located on the property. Roscoe had the Beretta handgun tucked into his pants and was seeking a rifle Hennessy had been given by his grandfather, John Hennessy. Hennessy wiped down the rifle and gave it and a box of ammunition to Roscoe. Cheeseman, meanwhile, had found a pillowcase and some gloves, put the gloves on, and placed the rifle in the pillowcase. Roscoe was enraged at the police and said he intended to return to his property and burn down the Quonset containing the grow-up in the chop shop. Hennessy and Cheeseman knew armed confrontation with the police was a real possibility and that the situation was clearly trouble. Roscoe decided to hide his truck at his aunt's residence and Hennessy and Cheeseman agreed to follow him there in order to give him a ride back to his property. Hennessy asked Cheeseman to accompany him for support and comfort. Both men were intimidated and fearful of Roscoe. They followed Roscoe to the aunt's residence and waited while Roscoe parked his truck on the property. While they waited, they discussed leaving Roscoe there, but decided not to act upon that plan. Roscoe returned and entered the vehicle. On the drive towards his property, Roscoe ranted and complained about the RCMP and threatened to get even with them. He again indicated he was going to burn down the Quonset. Roscoe directed Hennessy to a point on Range Road 80, to the west across the field from where the police were located. Hennessy and Cheeseman could see the lights of the police cars. Roscoe pulled socks over his boots, took the rifle, and left in the direction of the police. It was between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m., March 3, 2005. Hennessy and Cheeseman drove directly home. Cheeseman suggested that they should call police and warn them, but Hennessy discouraged the idea and thought that Roscoe would come after them should he evade the police. Neither Hennessy nor Cheeseman made such a call to the police, either then or at any time prior to their arrests in July of 2007. On January 19, 2009, Sean Hennessy pleaded guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to 10 years for the killings. He was granted full parole in 2015 and his sentence fully expired in 2019. The same day as Hennessy, Dennis Cheeseman also pleaded guilty to manslaughter. Cheeseman's statutory release came in November of 2013 after serving two-thirds of a seven-year, two-month, 15-day sentence for manslaughter. When Cheeseman was released, it was on conditions that he abstain from drugs and alcohol and not associate with criminals until his entire sentence expired on April 13, 2016. However, he was arrested in August of 2014 after being found in possession of a controlled substance. In September of that year, Cheeseman was fined $1,000 for having prescription drugs, codeine, that were not in his name and released. I think manslaughter was right for these two yeah um there's a famous saying from like one of the 
Stoic philosophers, it might have been Zeno or Seneca, I'm not sure, but he said, if a companion is dirty, his friends cannot help but get a little dirty too, no matter how clean they started out. Yeah. And, or as my mom would, so I'll rephrase that in my mom's language. If you wallow with the pig, you both end up smelling like shit. It's true. And, you know, they were not responsible for murder, but definitely manslaughter. And this just goes to show when you start hanging around with the wrong people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My mom used to say you're pegged by who you hang with. Yeah. It's yeah. true. Yeah. And, uh, God, that, what does that mean? I hang out with you. <laughs> right. It's just, oh, it's bad. You're dragging me down. I'm dragging you into the muck. <laughs> the Mayerthorpe Fallen Four Memorial Society was founded to honor the slain RCMP members. The group initiated the building of the Fallen Four Memorial Park in Mayerthorpe. In summer of 2008, the Fallen Four Memorial Park was complete. Contractor PCL Maxim put the final touches on the site with the installation of the center obelisk on June 23, 2008, and the four bronze statues of the Fallen Four by artist Don Begg on July 3, 2008. The park opened on July 4. Also in 2008, a memorial in honor of the Fallen Four was unveiled in Whitecourt, Alberta, with a bench for each officer around a bronze statue of Constable Gordon's boots. Gordon was stationed at Whitecourt. The Minister of Justice convened a fatality inquiry into the deaths at Mayerthorpe under the Fatality Inquiries Act of Alberta before Assistant Chief Judge Daniel R. Paul. The inquiry began on January 11, 2011 in Stony Plain Provincial Court. The lengthy period between the killings and the inquiry was because the Fatalities Inquiries Act provides that inquiries are to be stayed pending determination of criminal charges in relation to the deaths. The inquiry produced a 26-page report concluding that the deaths of the four officers were homicides and the death of Roscoe was a suicide. The report provides a detailed factual account of the killings and also made eight recommendations to prevent a similar event from occurring in the future. This is yet another sad example of the ever-revolving door of Canadian justice. Had justice been done, James Roscoe, an antisocial petty criminal and probable sexual predator, would most likely have been in jail and would never have been free to commit the murders of the four officers. Sadly, Canadian police officers are still dying in the line of duty. This case had been on the list of ones to cover since I'd first created my list of possible episodes in 2017. I was inspired to cover this story now after the recent news of the killing of Constable Shailen Yang while on the job in Burnaby, B.C., Constable Yang, who worked in the Burnaby RCMP Detachment's mental health and homeless outreach team, died following an altercation at Broadview Park in Burnaby. Constable Yang, an RCMP member with three years' service, was on scene with a Parks employee to make contact with a 37-year-old man named Jong Mun Ham, informing him he was not permitted to camp there any further. Their intent was not to remove him, just to inform him that he had to leave. Ham, who'd been living in a tent near the athletic field for a number of months, attacked Constable Yang with a knife, and she later died of her injuries at a nearby hospital. Ham, already wanted for two past assault charges, was shot during the altercation but survived his wounds. Jong Won Ham made a court appearance on the Wednesday after the stabbing and was then remanded in custody to await his next court appearance set for November 2, 2022. The investigation is still ongoing. In a statement, Deputy Commissioner Dwayne MacDonald, the commanding officer of the BCRCMP, said, quote, She was a loving wife, a sister, and a daughter. Those she worked with before joining the RCMP and her police colleagues described Constable Yang as a kind and compassionate person, which makes her death even more difficult to accept, end quote. RCMP Chief Superintendent Graham de la Gorgendiere wrote in his statement that, quote, Constable Yang was compassionate and caring, and she brought those skills every day to her job working with our community's most vulnerable, including those experiencing homelessness or mental health issues. Working with mental health and homelessness can be challenging, but Shaylin embraced it with passion. She found value working with this team and working to help those struggling in our community, end quote. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau wrote on Twitter, quote, My heart goes out to the family of Constable Yang, to the community, not just in B.C., but right across the country. No doubt he was referring to the South Simcoe, Ontario Police Constables Devin Northrup and Morgan Russell, 
who were fatally shot while responding to a residential disturbance call, making the third and fourth officer deaths in that province this month. It's been a tough few weeks in Canadian policing, and there have been a few recent news articles pointing to a rise in the number of officers slain while on the job. A 26th of June 2022 Vancouver Sun article by Douglas Todd pointed out a few related facts. Apparently, it is safer to be a cop in Canada than in the United States. Todd wrote that Canadian cops are far less likely to kill or be killed than U.S. counterparts. He writes, quote, A U.S. police officer is more than three times more likely than a Canada law enforcement official to be murdered. The main reason for the relative safety surrounding Canadian police officers is the U.S. has a much more violent culture. According to a study by Rick Perrant, a former Delta police officer and associate professor emeritus at Simon Fraser University and co-researcher Catherine Perrant. And importantly, Canadian cops, in general, are more highly trained and better financed and more regulated, say the Perrants. Prior to Constable Shailen Yang's murder, there had only been four police officers murdered in 40 years in British Columbia with the last one coming in 2017 when Constable John Davidson was murdered in Abbotsford in an unprovoked attack. We covered that story in episode 111. Hopefully, this recent rise will stop here, and we won't have to hear of another officer dying in the line of duty for a very long time. Or maybe never. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 242, Fallen 4, The Mayor Thorpe Tragedy, Part 2, The Shooting and Aftermath. That's right, it's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All right, Matthew, it is time for voicemails. We we got a lot of voicemails this week, so thankfully we're recording two episodes today, so we have a bunch. Boom. Yeah. So let's listen to our first voicemail. I'm very curious what somebody has to say. Ahoy, hoy. Hello, Mike and Matthew. My name is Danielle, longtime listener, first time caller. Uh, I am on the Yumber Yard and I'm the lady who had Butters, the bulldog, uh, who sadly passed away at the end of July this year. Um, I just want to say Mike mentioned a few episodes back that he suffered from tinnitus, so ringing in the ears. Um, I've personally worked with military members for many years. Uh, they often have hearing loss from either inappropriate or lack of hearing protection gear while around uh, guns and those types of things, uh, have heard great results of something called green noise. So that helps with concentration. It's kind of like white noise for babies, uh, but for adults. Uh, I personally have tinnitus from my younger years of listening to punk rock music, probably a little too loud. Uh, I find that it helps uh, me to concentrate while I'm doing my work. Uh, green noise has also been known to help for people with ADHD. Uh, so it's kind of just like a, a scritchy kind of in the background, but what it does is it kind of like just soothes your thoughts. Um, anyways, I wanted to suggest this for Mike, and I hope you guys have a great day. As we might say in French, bye-bye, guys. <laughs> wow, thank you. Some advice for my tinnitus and tinnitus. I Yeah, I am really... I suffer from it uh, not terribly because sometimes it's louder than others. I've learned to kind of tune it out. But green noise is something I'll look into. I'm sure there's like Spotify green noise I, or apps with green noise. So I will definitely try it. And, and, I'll, and I'll let you know, Danielle, how it worked for me. First of all, I want to say Butters. Yeah. We miss Butters. Yeah. So it's so, yeah, we loved Butters. Danielle, sorry, sorry that, that you'll... You'll, you'll, you lost the lovely pooch. Um, and now I'm also picturing Danielle getting tinnitus from dancing at Fufuni Electric. <laughs> um, so Danielle, call us back again. Let us know if you scared of the Fufuns. Um, and Mike, if I can tune, turn, tune you out, you can tune out the tinnitus. Oh, geez. <laughs> Let's move on to our next voicemail. I'm not even going to respond to that. I guess that's a response in itself. But anyway, here you go. Hi, uh, this is Dave from, from a small town, Hague, Saskatchewan. 
I just listening to you, or just finished listening to you after 241, The Fallen Ball. And uh, when I first started listen, listening to it, I thought that you guys did it before, but don't think about it. I heard it on a different podcast, which is fine with me because I, I don't mind hearing uh, the host, the different host point of view on on um, on the same um, event, and I think you guys have done a very good job on it, and look forward to uh, part two, maybe part three. Don't uh, not sure how my process is, and I also uh, wouldn't mind hearing you guys after everything's said and done, is doing that um, a podcast on. The, the tragedies of the James Smith First Nations. I actually was on the highway on the way way home. I passed uh, uh, between um, the high end of Idwell just for Highway 11 uh, to just past Warman. There was uh, two, two cop cars and five RCMP on the northbound lanes. Just, uh, uh, just a Saturday road, so I decided to pull off into the town of Osler because I had a feeling something was was going going down. And sure, sure enough, about five ten minutes later, the RCM, uh, the three RCMP that were on the on the on the highway uh, were screaming down northbound, uh, and and. Uh, yeah, I didn't witness the takedown, but I didn't want to get caught in the middle of it. So, so yeah, like that was a very stressful few days for Saskatchewan and probably uh, and uh, just Canada. So, uh, keep up the good job and go shit in your hat. Well, thanks for calling. I think thanks, you've called Dave. before. I think he's called before. Oh, can I give him a job description? Even, even yeah, sure. Why not? Well, he's from the Hague, so I I think he's he's a, a lawyer. Okay, and he puts um, people who've committed crimes against humanity in jail because he he's in the Hague. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. So he was he was talking. Uh, well, thank you for your comments about Mayor Thorpe, and and we're we're glad that you know sometimes I'm hesitant about covering something that's been covered on another podcast, but um. I think dark poutine, we have a different way of covering things. I don't know. But um, people want our coverage of things that they've heard lots of, lots of times. Yeah. So why not? And uh, he was also talking at the end about the, the um, James Smith Cree Nation, uh, what happened there, which, you know, there was a mass killing at the hands of one or two, it's very debatable how, whether the second guy was actually involved, uh, in which 11 people were killed. Um, and that is something that's kind of on my list to do, but it's a little fresh right now, so I probably won't be covering it right away. We'll it's give, something down, it the road, yeah. down the road. Down the We'll let it uh, simmer a little bit, because uh, I think there'll probably be an inquiry into what happened. I think we should wait until they understand what happened yeah exactly and and that's why i do wait for some of these episodes because i don't feel the need to get out ahead of it and scoop people and all that kind of stuff i want to give people as much information as possible on the story and, and we don't have a team of journalists doing investigations no it's we, just we need to hear what happens <laughs> exactly <laughs> so thank you very much thanks dave uh next up we have another one. There are two more short ones. Hi, guys. This is Jesse calling from Montreal. Uh, I just heard your latest uh, episode. You guys were requesting some funny stuff, so here goes. Um, what do you call a short psychic that's just committed a crime? A small, medium at large. <laughs> All right, I'll see myself out. Go, sh go shit in your hat, you guys. Take care. <laughs> small, medium at large. That's Funny, actually. <laughs> really Thank good. you, Jesse. Wow, that's appropriate for Halloween too. A small, medium at large. A small, medium at large. Fantastic. Oh, and terrible at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thank, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, yeah, here's another short little voicemail before we move on to Patreon. Hey, it's uh, Casper calling again. Um, uh, I just want to thank you guys for enlightening us on. Uh, 
what I like to call Canada's black eye with the way we've uh, treated people in this country. And uh, great job, guys. Go uh, take a shit in your hat and then wash it. Have a good day. <laughs> I guess, yeah. You want to be sanitary about your tube pooping. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Casper. Say hi to Valerie for me. Yeah, there you go. Cool. And let's move on to Patreon. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 327 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Oh my goodness, Patreon time. Patreon time. Time for Patreon. <laughs> time for some Patreon shoutouts. First up, we have Nancy Beeson Mead. Nancy Beeson Mead. And I don't know where Nancy is from, Matthew. Nancy, where on Nancy, earth is she from? Nancy is from Osaka. She's from Osaka. Yeah. Yeah. And what does she do in Osaka, I suppose, Japan? She is a master origamist. Origamist. Yeah. I just think of, uh, when I think of origami, I always think about James Edward Olmos's character in Blade Runner. Because okay. he used to leave the little origami things at every oh, yes. crime scene kind of thing. Yeah, no, but no, she's really good. So she trained under uh, Tomoko Fuse. Okay. Who was famous for boxes. And, um, and she actually devised a standardized method for creating many modular polyhedras. Oh, polyhedras. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Polyhedrons are really, really cool to look at. Yeah. And yeah. She, she sort of standardized the way to do it. In paper. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Really so, well done. So, so this is a Patreon that, you know. Well, thank you, knows Nancy. Her, knows her stuff. She really does. <laughs> Next up, we have from Port Townsend in California, Desi Rose, Desi Rose. And what does Desi Rose do there in Port Townsend, California? She's a streaker. <laughs> you get paid for streaking? Yeah. She, she takes bets. Oh, she takes bets. Like, what are the bets for? Like, when she's going to be caught? Yeah, and so she keeps on, no, for, to do it. So she keeps upping it. And, okay. And what's that big football thing in America? The Super Bowl? Yeah, she's doing that next. <laughs> oh, well, she's going to do the Super Bowl next. Yeah. So. People are taking bets as to whether or not she'll streak at the Super Bowl? Yeah. Okay. So they're like, 100 bucks you won't. So she uh, does it, you know, puts herself at risk. But Well, you know what? You know, if you're going to make some money, why not make it by, by showing your stuff? Yeah, why not naked? <laughs> make your money naked. Make your money naked. Matthew and I could be naked right now and you wouldn't even know. <laughs> We're not. We're not, though. <laughs> We should start a podcast. Maybe later. We should start a podcast and make your money naked. Make your money naked. <laughs> or just like, we're do, we do this podcast naked. Naked. Oh, Maybe man. that would be a good publicity stunt. What, doing a podcast naked? The naked podcasters. Yeah. Like the naked chef. Exactly. But <laughs> the thing is, you could just lie and say you're naked. Yeah, but we're honest. Are, are we? Well, I am. Well, me too. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> that is it for Patreon. Thank you very much. And we don't have any donut money donors this week. And uh, we know we won't have any in the next show because... Because we're recording both now. We're recording both today. But so. if you want me to come up with a really cool job description for you... Yeah. They can tell all your friends about Become a Patreon. Where do they go to Become a Patreon, Mike? Well, they go to patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Yeah, we, I always, I have a little thing. Because I'm going to start getting more and more outrageous, so we need people uh, sending oh, money in. Okay, yes, yeah, yeah. Cause, Some of them are going to be really quite rude. <laughs> quite rude. <laughs> anyway, thank you, folks. We love you, and, and we know you love us. Well, we hope so. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us Donut Money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that is it for Dark Poutine episode 242. Thank you so much for the last five years. Again, I can't believe it that it's been five years since we started Dark Poutine. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And uh, until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. showcase they call me the christchurch carver based on the international bestseller this trademark souvenir can't stop thinking about the apple usually he eats it i've got a copycat on my hands i know who you are joe i know what you do you have two days to find a copycat this is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it dark city the cleaner all new wednesdays on showcase stream on stack tv